Well met, friends. I'm Jude Vase. And I'm Steph Midlock. Welcome to Athrobeth, a podcast exploring the flagrant fratricides of Tolkien's Legendarium. Hey, Jude. How's it going? Not too bad. Uh, Not too bad? Yeah. Happy February. Happy February. Uh, <laughs> or February, as my son oh. likes to call it. Oh, that's adorable. Oh. Yeah. It's not actually February for us, but it will be when you listen to this. And by the time you listen to this, mm. uh, the application for Athroplay will be closed. Yeah. So we want to say a thank you to everyone who applied. Yeah. Uh, we thank got you so much. a really great response to the application. And we also want to say thank you to everyone who sent it to. Uh, their friends and to people they thought would be a good fit. Really, uh, I continue to be surprised that people listen. I know to, to, uh, to this podcast <laughs> mm. uh, and then like it and then engage with us. So uh, I really genuinely appreciate that people um, took the time to respond and to uh, to help us out. Yeah, you're all amazing. Thank you so so much. Reading your applications has been great and we continue to do so through the end of the of the, of uh, January. So thank you. Yeah, you should if you applied, you should be if you have not already gotten an email from us, you should be getting an email an email from us just outlining what our process is going to be going through those applications and then what will be next as we move forward. Uh what else is going on in in the the world of Tolkien? Well, Steph? I don't know. I've been like, it's been a rough start to the year for me. So I, I don't know what's going on. I got to tell you. But I did want to mention in the far future, far, far, far future, the Tolkien Society has got their annual, their big annual program, um, their gathering that they do, which is called Oxenmoot, happens um, at the end of August. So it's Thursday, the 31st of August to Sunday, the 3rd of September. That happens in Oxford, but they also have a very vibrant digital conference that you can attend as well, where you can see everything that's happening and be a part of all the fun stuff and, and also be a part of like breakout rooms. It's great. I do have some bad news about that this year, though. Why? Steph and I will be attending in person. Oh! So you, you will be denied Steph's time zone addled ramblings on Twitter this year. <laughs> no, you'll uh, just get my in-person ramblings on Twitter. So that's good. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but the last couple of years, Steph has attended Oxenmoot digitally and the the time zone difference has oh. left us by the end of Oxenmoot with a highly entertaining uh, <laughs> Steph in a, in a pretty altered state. Uh, yes. But you do not get that this year because Steph and I will both be attending Oxenmoot in person. Yeah, we're so really excited. So if you excited. are going to be there... Yeah, uh, you you can say hi. Yeah, please do if you're gonna if you're gonna be there. We would love to meet everybody and um uh, and just uh, enjoy enjoy the weekend with with the play. You know, in situ that will be really exciting. Right now, the Tolkien Society has an early bird special on their registration. You can find that on their website, which is tolkiensociety.org backslash event backslash oxenmoot dash twenty twenty three. And uh, we can link to it in the show notes. But um, their coupon goes until midnight on February 28th, 2023. So if you want 10 pounds off of your registration, go check that out. Um, they're such a great group. And uh, the scholarship that comes out of these weekends is amazing. And um, we have met so many wonderful people through their various programs. And so a Agreed. big thank you yeah. to them for having us and for putting these on and making these so accessible uh, digitally, which is great. Yeah. Yes. So we hope to see you there. Pack your bags, bitches. What? I don't know. That was <laughs> very weird. Aggressive. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, brother. 
All right. Well, I mean, I guess if, well, I guess, no, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. I don't know what I'm saying. I will say happy Valentine's Day to everybody who celebrates that dumb holiday. Uh, yeah, that's it. In that spirit, we've got many <laughs> killer paths to tread. But let's begin. So what are we talking about this month, Steph? Well, instead of talking about sexy Valentine's Day kind of stuff, we decided to kind of go a different route because, you know, this is this is Afterbath and we do what we want here, bitches. We do what we want. We, We're we spend, going. Yes. We spend a lot of time during the rest of the, the, the year being yeah. horny for Rohan and <laughs> things like that. So it makes sense me. that we would yeah. go a different route on Valentine's month. So. Yeah, it's like that penguin meme where he's like, well, now I'm not doing it, you know, because <laughs> it's like that. Okay. Yes. He's got his arms, his little fins crossed over his chest and he looks real mad. So we're going to talk instead of doing like horny stuff or whatever, we're going to do the kin slayings because that's topical for Valentine's Day, right? What's more romantic <laughs> than murdering your your cousins and <laughs> siblings? Oh, God. Terrible. Well, you know, we talked, we touched on this quite a bit in the Oaths episode that we had a few months back. And yeah. I decided that, you know, everyone talks about the kinslaying, but there's actually three kinslayings that were sort of a fleet of events. And I just thought we should go over all of them and then talk about, like, what are they accomplishing? What what can we glean from them? What can we learn from them? And um, and And kind of like, why are they here in this book? I don't know. I yeah. thought that might no, be I think interesting. That's a, I thought it's a great idea, if for no other reason than because I agree. I think the common perception when you say the kinslaying is like the the first one we're going to talk about. Right, one and done. And there are two more, and arguably they get worse. They do, yes, exactly. Even <laughs> so Tolkien it says. Should, <laughs> it should be, I, so I think this is a, a, a great topic to dive into. I agree. Perfect. Well, I'm so glad. So, listeners, we're going to start by I'm going to kind of lead us through what happened in each of the kinslayings, like book report style, and Jude's going to give us all of his great hot takes. After that, I'm going to present a really nifty article that I think ties in really well, and then kind of present some poems from the Poetic Edda that kind of tie in. And then we're going to oh. maybe talk about some lessons learned, and then I'd like to t maybe circle back to like those in our stories who broke this cycle. So, I think that will be interesting. To start, though, let's start with, like, what happened? What happened where? Let's spill the tea on the kinslayings, as it were. Yeah. All right. So let's start. Again, we talked about this a few uh, a few episodes back with when we spoke about the Oath of Feanor. Uh, so this is going to sound a little bit um, familiar to some of you who might have heard that episode, but we're going to go really quickly over what happened. So as you know, Feanor is like the number one douchiest elf who ever lived, right? He was just the worst. <laughs> He was the worst. He was beautiful, but also wrathful and not very humble and didn't like to share, basically. Even if you do not agree with our assessment <laughs> that he is the number one asshole, <laughs> I think you one must grant that he is the single most problematic elf in, in the Silmarillion. Uh, I think it's difficult to argue that he did not, his actions did not cause the most bloodshed. Yeah, the ripple out effects. of all the elves. Yep. Yeah, the oath. We talked about 
this in the oath episode, but I do want to reiterate it here. There, I, I've seen some really interesting debate recently because uh, in the community around like fan or other interpretations of Fanor's actions, which I think is really interesting. And I think that might be and an important. interesting episode to yeah. get a guest on here that doesn't hate Fanor. Like ask Don Walls Thuma to come back. <laughs> well, somebody that him. has a more like yeah. someone has a different a different angle on on his actions. Sure, sure. But fair. The way the oath is phrased, I think, is very hard to debate that it is not designed for destruction. Right. Because it it is so uncompromising and so damning and so. It has one outcome in which everything does not burn down. Right. Outside of that one outcome, it beholds Feanor and his sons to grotesque deeds. Right. Right. And that's the part I want to highlight up at the top here. Yeah, I think that's I think that's super important. And I think one point also we made during the O's episode is that O's are taken very seriously in Tolkien's Legendarium. When you swear an yeah. oath... You're going to do it until the very bitter end, right? So what is the Oath of Feanor? So let's very quick recap. So Feanor was an amazing crafter and jewelsmith and all these things. He created the three beautiful Silmarils, these jewels that captured the light of the two trees, right? Now, mm -hmm. we know that uh, Melkor and his little spider lady, Ungoliant, snuffed out the two trees and plummeted the world into darkness. And the Valar, the gods of the of the world, sort of, or the demigods, if you will, asked Feanor for his three beautiful Silmarils so that Varda could fix the two trees and return the light to the two trees. So basically, hey, can you help us give light back to the world? Feanor said, basically, get fucked, right? <laughs> yeah. In so many words. In yes. so many words, yeah. Not knowing that he couldn't have said yes anyway because... Melkor had stolen the Silmarils. Exactly. Melkor had was busy ransacking his his fortress and stealing the Silmarils anyway. And in this time, Feanor's beloved father, Finway, the first king of the Noldor, was killed trying to defend the fortress. So this plus the stolen Silmarils really pushed Feanor kind of over the edge, okay? He declares himself king of the Noldor and he gives this a very impassioned speech to convince the Noldor to leave Valinor and go back to their home in Middle-earth to fight the Dark Lord, now named Morgoth. This is when we see that name shift from Melkor to Morgoth. Um, yeah. And he was such a smooth talker that he did actually manage to convince them, right? Like, not everybody, but he managed to convince a bunch. Yeah, and I think it's worth pointing out that, especially because we're talking about the Kinslain, yeah. that a lot of people agreed to go with him not because... They thought he was right or because they thought that he was dope sauce. <laughs> there were a lot of people like Galadriel mm -hmm. who went with him for their own reasons. Mm -hmm. Because, and this is something that I think is a thread throughout that I think is referenced but never outright like, like a, a main theme, but uh, runs through the whole Silmarillion is the one of the fundamental flaws in the Valar's plan is bringing the elves to Amon. That was never yeah. their, their, their role in Middle-earth. And by bringing them over there, they're removed from what they're supposed to be doing. And a lot of the elves feel that. Galadriel is sort of the spokesperson for this point of view 
in the, in the Silmarillion because she has a desire to go back to Middle-earth and build and do the work that the elves are supposed to be doing. And it's referenced a little bit at the beginning of the Silmarillion, like some of the Valar are like, this is not what we signed up for. This is this was not the plan. Mm. And some of the Valar are like, well, we can't let them die. So it's not like they did it out of out of spite. They did it with the best intentions. Right. But it puts the elves in a weird position mm. of they are removed from their, their natural habitats, for lack of a better word. Yeah. So anyway, I'm getting it's off like, track It's an elf bit. zoo. It's an elf zoo, right? We have to save yeah. them. The conservation, we have to save them so they have to come and live in this zoo. But really, they're yeah. meant to be living and doing the work that Eru put them on Arda to do, right? And that's yeah. in Middle-earth, right? That's yeah. a great point. I'm so glad you said that because I never really thought about that. But it puts my, I, I mentioned it because it does put a lot of the, the Noldor in a position, the Noldor in particular, because they have this creative drive so strong in them, in particular in the Noldor, that they want to be somewhere where they can make new things, see new things. And that's Middle Earth. Yeah. So when, when Feanor is like, we have been restrained here, mm-hmm. we have been pent up, a lot of people, that resonates with people who th- might think Feanor's a punk. Yeah. But they, but they want what they want the opportunity that he offers. Yeah. So when it, so when they get to when when the first kinslaying comes up, this is a lot of them get roped into this problematically, and we'll we'll get yeah, there. Yeah, we'll we get, get to there. What happens? Yeah, but, they didn't. They signed on to go to Middle Earth. They did not sign up to do all of these kinslayings. Yeah, and that, that's what I'm. That's what I'm yeah. trying. That's the point I'm trying yeah. to make here is a lot of the Noldor signed up to go back to Middle Earth and do what they feel like they were meant to do, yeah. not to be signatories to the oath. The oath is binding to right. Feanor and his sons, mm-hmm. not to the Noldor as a people. Right. But they get roped in to a lot of the consequences because, especially in those early years, with mm-hmm. Feanor and his sons as the kings of the Noldor, they are following their lead. Yeah. And so when Jude says the oath, basically this is happening in the, the, the Silmarillion and then the, in the Quintus Silmarillion, chapter 9 of the flight of the Noldor. And we, we read the quote a few uh, episodes ago, so I won't read the whole thing, but basically they swear, Feanor and his son swear this quote-unquote terrible oath. And basically, <clears throat> at the end, they're, what they're vowing is they're vowing to pursue with vengeance and hatred to the ends of the world Valar, demon, elf, or man as yet unborn, or any creature, great or small, good or evil, that time should bring forth unto the end of days, who should hold or take or keep a Silmaril from their possession. So, pursuing with vengeance and hatred. Holy shit. That's, yeah, it, that's a big swing. Yeah, it is a deeply messed up oath. Yeah, of course it is. It's terrible. And they it basically goes on to say, like, they're all like, Okay, yeah. Basically, he and his seven sons. He, so, he, so Feanor has these seven sons: Madros, Maglor, Caligorm, Curufin, Caranthir, Amrod, and Amras. Right? Those are the princes. Nice roll there. Oh, thank, I know. Thank you, Wizard Way, Chris. I, I thank, I thank them for <laughs> my trilled R's. Yeah. So basically, yeah. So uh, four, so sworn, good or evil, an oath may not be broken, and it shall pursue Oathkeeper. And Oathbreaker to the world's ends. Like, damn, that's insane. That's a lot. Yeah. So that's where this is coming from, right? The, Feanor's like, I am good. Whoever has my Silmarils, we're going to fuck up their day. We're going to fuck up their life. 
And I think what you find here, and I think this is the running theme throughout these kinslings, and we're going to see this in this article that I bring up later, is that <laughs> kinslaying solves nothing. It just starts no. a cycle of vengeance and violence that spirals out of control and achieves nothing in the end. And so, and yeah. that's the theme that we're going into this. So, okay. Yeah. And this oath also becomes a, especially with the first kinslaying, and I think that may be why the first kinslaying is so notorious, is mm. it isn't even about a Silmaril. Right. It is, they're simply in the way. Yes. So let's get to it. Let's talk about what happens. So the first kinslaying, they call this uh, the kinslaying at Al-Kulandi. This, so basically, Feanor decides to go to Middle-earth to get his Silmarils back. He rallies an old order to go with him. There are a few, there's a few people like Finarfin, a few smart guys of the Noldor and elves are like, hey, we should probably, you guys, let's just cool off for a little bit. But Feanor's like, no, we got to go right now when everybody's all fired up. We got to go. So he pushes and he basically, because he wants to leave right away, this host of the Noldor gets kind of divided into two groups. Feanor and his sons and their like super duper followers go first. And then later, Fingolfin and his sons with the greater numbers are bringing up the rear. Um, and that's important. So yeah, we see... We see them leaving and we see uh, some of the I, I can't remember the quote, but it says like, you know, some of some of the best. <laughs> I feel like what it's saying is some of the best ones like Finrod, Galadriel, all those people are are at the back because they keep turning back to look upon uh, Teniquetl mm -hmm. and, and look upon their home, knowing it could be the last time they see it. Right. So yeah. they're at the very trail end of this giant traveling group right there at the back of the second group. OK, so. They're marching. Here they go. But hey, guess what? There's a giant sea in between them and Middle Earth. They need a way to get there, right? And that is where this this comes in. So Feanor, so going way back, Jude brought us through the different groups of the elves. So we're talking about the Noldor, right? One of the bigger groups of the elves. There's another group of elves called the Teleri. And these were the ones who were like the ship, the ship elves. They're really good at sailing, right? They loved Ulmo and Ase and Oinen. They loved all those uh, kind of sea babies, if you will. They're, they're the, yep. in the My Little Pony world, these are the sea ponies, if you will. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Somebody who is also born in the 80s is going to get that. Um, so, yeah. So they visit the Teleri of Al-Kulandi. And, and I want to read a couple of quotes because so they get there and Fanor and his sons appeal to the Teleri and say, hey, we are doing this thing. We really need your ships. They have these absolutely beautiful ships that they made. And, and what I would say to start with is these ships are as important to the Teleri as Feanor's Silmarils are to him and his sons, okay? Which so is, that's what yeah, the ask is, is even though the he Teleri was at, are very at pains to point out. Yes, yes. That, you know. No, absolutely. And they're also, and what I think what Tolkien does is very interesting here. I want to read a couple of these quotes because Tolkien is setting us up for what's about to happen. So he says, they, and I'm putting in brackets, so that he's talking about the Teleri, they were grieved indeed at the going of their kinsfolk and long friends, but would rather dissuade them than aid them. And no ship would they lend, nor helping in the building against the will of the Valar. So he's going out of his way to say they're kinsfolk and long friends, okay? Because when all the elves originally came from Middle-earth over the sea, right, on the first trip over, it was the Noldor who sort of helped them go, right? Yeah. So Feanor gets really pissed at this. And he basically, in not so many words, is very rude and says to their king that you guys would all be still be slumming it on the beach 
if it wasn't for the Noldor. Okay, and he accuses the Teleri of sort of renouncing their friendship in their hour of need. And their king says this, but Alway answered, we renounce no friendship, but it may be the part of a friend to rebuke a friend's folly. And when the Noldor welcomed us and gave us aid, otherwise then you spoke. In the land of Amon, we were to dwell forever as brothers whose houses stand side by side. So Tolkien is really putting it on pretty thick that we are buddies, we are kin, we are friends, right? We support each other. (laughs) So, but he basically says, dude, we're not giving you our ships. Fuck off. Feanor stews for a little while. And then he is like, well, fuck this. I'm just going to take what I want. And he and his sons and their followers in that first group go to the Haven of the Swans, which is the Teleri's Harbor, and basically start boarding the ship and taking them by force. This ends, now the Teleri were pissed about this, and they start kind of throwing rocks and little arrows at them, right? So they're like, please get off of our ship. They, they kind of knock a few Noldor off into the water. But this is, this is the catalyst that basically starts this terrible battle. Yeah. The Noldor then pull their swords the Teleri pull their bows and it's becomes an all out rumble basically. And things yeah. were pretty even until that second group led by Fingon shows up. Okay. So Fingon and his party, remember they were super far back. They have no idea what's going on. They basically show up in the middle of this battle. They, they very quickly assess the situation and they think that perhaps the Noldor are being attacked by the Teleri because it, you know, the, the Valar told the Teleri to or whatever. They're trying to tell them, like, you know, they think that their people are being, are, are like the victims well, here. I mean, <laughs> yeah, their choice is to defend their kin or yeah. to sit there and watch. Right. And they jump into action without all the information and defend their kin against the Teleri. And, and in, in true Tolkien... <laughs> fashion this whole section is so it's like a couple of pages it's basically and the teleri were slain and their ships were taken so and like and, but it but, it but it's a bloodbath it is a massacre yeah. it's a massacre right yeah the teleri are slaughtered yeah and then it gets worse and then it gets worse so then our so the, a lot of the ships also go down during this so a bunch of people have to walk anyway Okay, so they travel kind of together for a while. Okay, and they they're they're getting up to like the frozen north, and this is when they see this dark figure on the shore. This is Mandos, and this is when we get this Doom of Mandos, also called the Doom of the Noldor, also called the Curse of Mandos, also called the Prophecy of the North. Basically, yeah. this is the Valar judging the Noldoran elves who carried out this kinsling at Alkalandi, and basically. I, again, I'm not going to read it because I think we read it a few episodes ago. But basically what he says is, you guys fucked up big time. And now their oath is is going to drive them. But you're all part of this now. And what he says, to evil end shall all things turn that they begin. And by treason of kin unto kin and the fear of treason shall this come to pass. The dispossessed shall they be forever. Ye have spilled the blood of your kindred unrighteously and have stained the land of Amon. For blood ye shall render blood, and by Amon ye shall dwell in death's shadow. So basically, he's like, you guys killed your kin and went against what we said, and now you fucked. Yep. Um, so he basically puts this, this curse on them, and this, we're going to see, absolutely fulfills itself completely. And he's yeah. like, the Valar has spoken goodbye. Okay, so at this point, Finarfin and some of the Noldor are feeling super duper guilty. 
and they decide to turn back. They're like, forget it. We're going back. Okay. We're not going to do this. So Feanor yeah. and the Noldor are like, okay, bye haters, whatever. The rest of us are going to go wander up and take our ships up to the frozen north and the Hellcarax because we need to get over. We can't fit everybody on the ship. We're going to walk over the top. It's going to suck. Right. And so then Feanor is like, hmm? nah. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So Fanor is then like, I don't really want to do this. Why don't we, you know, maybe we'll take our, we'll take the sons, we'll take our best followers, and we're going to ditch everyone. And in the words of Enya, we're going to sail away, sail away, sail away. <laughs> right. Basically, they steal the ships and they go to Middle Earth. And with a vague pro, I think they make like a vague, like, oh, we'll come back for you. Right. That's exactly right. They do. They leave them. And and when they get there, the eldest son of Feanor, Maedros, is actually like, okay, so are we going to like send the boats back or what? And Feanor's like, oh, no. 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 We're not doing that. No. Not only are they not doing that, <laughs> he burns the boats. Right. He burns these beautiful these ships, Silmaril level boats. Yeah. Which were the, the Silmarils of the Teleri. He could have just left them there. Right. But, but because, he burns them because yes. he's a dick. Yep. This, he basically, there's, it's like the quotes are so good at this part. He's like, basically, fuck the haters. Um, and uh, they're, and I don't care. And the, the real kicker of this is that Fingolfin and the, the Noldor who were left behind could somehow, because it's magical, who knows, who could see, the fires were so big that they could see them and they knew immediately that they were betrayed. They were like, oh shit, he burned the boats. Guys, guys, he burned the boats. No, no. Now we're going to have to yeah. walk. This was like a giant fuck you. And then and then this little quote, this was the first fruits of the kinslaying and the doom of the Noldor. And I just like kind of love that. Right. So not only was it. So he betrays his own people. Hmm? Just to point out, it's actually not that magical that you could have seen that. W was it close? No. But oh, the world's flat. The world's flat. Right. And there's no, the world is flat and there's no, there's no moon and there's no light other than the stars. Of course. Oh my God, you're so smart. So if you burn a bunch of magical boats, who, which probably burn very bright and very long, yeah, it would. You would. I mean, you would see it. Yeah. It would. I mean, because there's no the horizon goes on theoretically forever. Because yeah. The, so because there's no curvature yet. Yet. Yep. There's a curvature so. later. And here's the thing. So the rest of the Noldor were like, well, fuck, I guess we're I guess we're hoofing it, everybody. But I like that Tolkien does write that basically this journey made them really, really strong. I mean, they already were really strong, but this made them resolve to get there. And they lost a lot of really good people along the way. So this was like a terrible journey. And this basically solidified that none of them have any love for Feanor. And I think it's important to note that like our girl Galadriel is in this group, right? So she Yeah. I mean, all of is, the all yeah. of the Noldor that you know are in this group. Yeah. Yeah. All of the Noldor that you know that Great. were not born in Middle-earth in Beleriand are in this group. That I think that's a very important thing to say. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. The only people that were in functionally the only people that were in that were on the ships mm -hmm. that are named that matter mm -hmm. are Feanor and his sons. Right. And they get chumped by the oath. <laughs> so, they do. So, all right. Okay. So now in, in the in-between times, a lot of stuff happens and we're, I'm not going to go into it because it doesn't, it's not, I, I mean, whilst it's sort of fallout aftermath, 
I mean, do you, is that okay? So basically, Feanor yeah. gets into a big fight with Melkor and the Balrogs, and he and well, he he dies. I I do want to highlight <laughs> that. Okay, because that is a big leap I'm making. <laughs> I do want to just highlight. Go ahead, go ahead. It is important. It's important. No, it's not, and that's why I want to highlight it. No, it is. Okay. No, it's not. I'm going to argue. Feanor, <laughs> Feanor gets to Middle Earth. Yeah. And in the first battle with Melkor, yeah, he gets his dander up mm-hmm. and chases a pack of Balrogs right. across a battlefield like a fucking idiot. Right. <laughs> gets cut off from the rest of his army. And gets the shit kicked out of him right. and dies on a hill. Okay. Yes. He doesn't even get to win a battle. Right. He doesn't. He he doesn't get anywhere. He gets nowhere near the Silmarils. He dies like a fucking chump, <laughs> having done absolutely nothing. Right. To get I'm towards s- the Silmarils, except get there. I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad that's exactly right. Now let the me ask you. Go ahead. Makes go ahead. The 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 Doom of Mandos makes a joke of him. Right. <laughs> it really it, does. It makes sure that he he stays as far away from the Silmarils as possible. Yeah. Cuz yeah. he goes where did what happens next? He goes right back to Amon. Right. Right. He's going to get locked up in the halls of Mandos. In the halls of Mandos and he's going to fucking park it there for the rest right. of eternity that's right. it and th- and that's- just and just stew and think about it yeah yeah oh, just and, the, and, and there is like it. a prophecy that says he's gonna come back someday and blah and fix everything blah but i mean i, I think that's just like a old wife uh, he he had, he kind of abandoned that prophecy later on yeah oh, okay that's good to but- know now i'm glad you said that now so when Fe- i do want to just touch on this because it w- i will bring it up later but so feanor is fights gothmog right the lord of the balrogs and we know balrogs are like these big old fire babies right they're big old spicy boys um mm-hmm. and feanor though so he gets like mortally wounded and his sons bring him to this like the foot of hills of some mountains right and he this is where he dies does he say anything to them i could not remember i asked you uh, um yes so tell me what he what does he say to them does what do, what does he does he leave them with any pearls of wisdom or anything he cursed the name of morgoth thrice and laid it upon his sons to hold to their oath and to avenge their father yeah Thank you. So that's exactly what I wanted you to say. That's exactly right. So in his dying moments, instead of gathering his sons around and being like, boy, I'm so proud of my big, strong boys. And I sure wish we had had time to start that Appalachian jug band that we always talked about. Like, I'm so proud of you all. Oh, all of you have great lives. Right. Like some people might do on a deathbed. He's like, don't forget about the cold. Oh, fuck you. Fuck you. And dies. Right. And then his body burns up burns it up his spirit is so pissed off right that his that he it burns his body yep and he gets dragged back to stew right i like to imagine that he sits there uh stewing until someone tells him that gimli got one of galadriel's hair not one (laughs) but three of galadriel's hairs uh and that that's it that's all anybody tells him (laughs) So oh, except mad. for the Silmarils. Except for that, your son, none of your sons ever got the Silmarils. The Silmarils never got, came back. Right. Spoiler alert. And uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. The only other information they give him is that a dwarf got three of Galadriel's hairs. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So you see, so you can see that his spirit would be real 
his his Fea would be real pissed off, right? His earthly yeah. soul. Okay, so great. So this is what's setting us up. So the so the boys, the Feanor babies, have now seen their dad die and accomplish basically nothing except a horrible kin slaying. And Absolutely now, fuck all. yeah, basically, fu- yep, yeah, exactly. And of course, this battle in which he dies, I just like the name. It's called the Dagor Nuin. Giliath, which is battle under the stars, because remember the world, as Jude pointed out, the world still has no light because that fucker would not just have, you know, given up the Silmarils, which would have ah, stopped all of this. But anyway, so his yep. body bursts into flames. Okay, great. So now let's fast forward. We got to fast forward and we're fast forwarding through with a lot of really great stuff. You got to get into the Silmar. You got to get into the Silmarillion to read all these good things because we're basically yeah. skipping. We're fast forwarding thousands and thousands of years. Thousands here. of years. We are now skipping. And if you're in your book, go ahead and turn to chapter 22 of the Quintus Silmarillion, the Ruin of Doriath. This is where we are now. So now we're in the first age, year 506, and this is an attack that led to the fall of the city of Doriath or the kingdom of Doriath. So let's let's as a reminder. Let's just say, let's remind ourselves that Doriath is the kingdom of Thingol, who's sort of the fanciest, it's, this is the fanciest kingdom of the Sindar elves in Beleriand, right? This had already sustained a lot of damage after Thingol fought with the dwarves of Arid Luin over a Silmaril in this fucking necklace named Nauglamir. Okay, in the city yep. of Menegroth. Basically, the city of Menegroth, the city within Doriath, was sacked in the Battle of a Thousand Caves. So that so things are not going well in Doriath to start with. Now, back up a little bit, some background. I want to just quickly mention Baron and Luthien. Luthien is the daughter of Thingol and his wife Melian, right? So kind of the princess of Doriath, if you will. They, I wanna, can I interrupt you for just one please. second? Please. I'm actually mistaken. It actually isn't thousands of years. It's like 500 it's, years. It's like 500 years? Yeah. Yeah. So so um, quick for an elf, but long for us. Well, I, I'm not going to get into the difference between like Valiant years and <laughs> like the, 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 the way time works in the years of the trees. Mm-hmm. But yes, uh, fundamentally speaking, it's a long time. Yeah, it's a long time. So Luthien, the daughter of Thingol, wants to marry this dude named Baron, who she loves. And Thingol is like, I don't want that guy to marry my daughter. He's a he's a human, right? I don't I don't want that guy to marry my. That's not a good <laughs> thing at all. We don't want that. So he gives them he gives Baron a terrible terrible quest to go on and he's like go and steal the Silmarils from the Iron Crown of Morgoth. Right? I'm gonna skip all of it. It's a great story, but just so you know. Uh, with some, with some casualties, he, this is, this does happen. And the Silmaril is brought back to Doriath and, uh, eventually set into this necklace named now Glamir, which is fucking cursed. We talked about this years ago, um, in a, yes. in an old December episode, but we'll talk about it here too. So blah, blah, blah. Now we're going to get to the set. Why am I telling you all this? This is all leading up to this second kin slaying. And this is occurring for this Silmaril, which is at the time called Dior Silmaril. Okay. So the Silmaril is sitting in Nauglamir. It came to, so Baron and Luthien pass away eventually. And this necklace comes to their son, a man, uh, a, uh, a, sec- a sexy guy, hey, named Dior. Okay. Yep. And he wore it around his neck. He looked super hot. Um, but, you know, he knew he knew the gravity that this necklace caused because not only did it sort of, 
you know, cause so many losses. It also like killed his grandfather, Thingle, right? Because he basically died for it. Oh, what a terrible freaking thing. Anyway, so word Thingle got around. It. <laughs> I know. Jude is not a Thingle fan. Um, Thingle, Thingle misses out on being the biggest asshole of the elves only because Feanor is such a an enormous, just so far out in first. The fact <laughs> that Thingle is in second, people yeah. tend to miss. But Thingle <laughs> is his own unique bag of assholes all by himself. <laughs> so word got around that Dior... Uh, was wearing the necklace, now Glamir, and that hit after the death of his parents, okay? So, uh, and it says, but now the rumor ran among the scattered elves of Beleriand that Dior, Thingol's heir, wore now Glamir, and they said, a Silmaril of Feanor burns again in the woods of Doriath, and the oath of the sons of Feanor was waked again from sleep. So, the sons of Feanor send Dior a message saying, demanding that he give it back. And Dior's like left leads them on red. He doesn't answer at all. Uh, <laughs> so they end up coming to the thousand caves without warning in the middle of winter and f- to, to basically raise a stink about this and fight. This is the second kin slaying. Okay. This is so bad. The, the fallout of this is, is so is terrible basically. And I'm yeah. going to read, I'm going to read if you don't mind, I, it's kind of long, but I would like to read uh, the quote. Yeah, this one's really this one's really important. It is. Yeah, agreed. And so befell the second slaying of elf by elf. There fell Keligorm by Dior's hand, and there fell Kurufin and Dark Karanthir. But Dior was slain also, and Nimloth his wife, and the cruel servants of Keligorm seized his young sons and left them to starve in the forest. And then a little later, thus Doriath was destroyed and never rose again, but the sons of Feanor gained not what they sought, for a remnant of the people fled before them, and with them was Elwing, Dior's daughter, and they escaped, and bearing with them the Silmaril, they came in time to the mouths of the river Sirion by the sea. Okay, so Dior's daughter, the only one of his three children that sort of, we think, survived this, grabs the Silmaril and gets and gets the fuck out of there and she survives and she makes it. Yeah. So, uh, and basically so the aftermath of this is that Doriath falls. We also see, you know, uh, three of Feanor's seven sons die. This is the first time we see the sons starting to fall. So Keligorm, Kurufin, and Caranthir are dead. Dior and his wife are dead. And their two sons are like seized by these cruel servants and they are left. It says they were left to die in the forest. No one really knows what happened to them. And Doriath is destroyed this huge kingdom. I'm going to come back to these two sons because I think it's interesting. And uh, there's um, a connection I want to just remember these two little boys or I don't know. I I kind of had this idea that they were little, but I don't know. Maybe I made that up. Maybe not. Anyway, blah, blah. No one knows what happened to them. Okay, so they so these refugees from Doriath go to the river Sirion by the sea. And basically the river the Syria this is a big delta. I can't remember the name of the bay, but it's like the big giant river. Belfalos. Yeah. What is yeah. it? Belfalos. 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 Okay, so this is a big giant ri- um, ba- a delta bay in Beleriand and this is where this is the setting for our next kinslaying. Yeah. So this is going to lead us to the third kinslaying at the mouths of Sirion. And this is fought over Elwing's Silmaril. So now remember, so Baird and Luthien had it. They passed it to their son Dior, who then passed it to his daughter Elwing, who got out. 
So the sons of Feanor, we have we have this. Our eldest son is this guy named Medros, who is is he kind of the ringleader? It feels like it. Um, so the the sons of of Feanor is complicated. They're kind of in pairs, right? They kind of go in pairs in a way. Medros is an interesting character because of all of them, he is arguably the one of the few, one of the few that is remotely redeemable. No, I don't think so. I think you're thinking of Maglor. Maedros no, Maedros is, he's a complicated figure mm. because he is not, like, don't get me wrong. Like, he's he's a real son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. But also, he has a close relationship with, oh, who is, is Oh, it? yeah, with Finn, Finn Narfin. With Finn Narfin, I think it is. I and think, he's, yeah. and he, he raises... He helps raise Elrond and Elros. Well, okay, that's Maglor, though. That's Maglor. That's not... Is it Maedros? Does he help, too? They, well, Maedros, Maedros and Maglor capture them. Maglor is the one that really raises them, but... Okay. Like, yeah, I think Maglor is more the one that is, like, considered the good one. Yeah. But Maedros is a complicated character. Sure. Okay. Um, so- in that he's, he's... He feels the obligation of his father's oath... But he is not like, he's not like Kurfin and Kelegorm, who are the sociopaths of the, <laughs> of, of the group. Yeah, that's very true. The second Kinslane being the bloodbath that it is, is often laid at their feet. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you said that. That's great. And they, they definitely eat shit for it and die. So there you go. Yep. Uh, and they still have not accomplished their thing because, you know, the Silmaril obviously was taken. So now we're in chapter 24 of the Quinta Silmarillion of the voyage of Eärendil and the War of Wrath. And so there came to pass the last and cruelest of slayings of elf by elf. And it was the third of the great wrongs achieved by the accursed oath. So basically, Maedros... Maglor, Amrod, and Amras attack, and they basically ask, they, they, they demand the Silmaril. They figure out where Elwing's taken it, and they demand it from her, and she's like, no, fuck you, we're not doing that. So, they decide to attack and destroy all the people living at the havens of Sirion. And now remember, I think it's important to remember, this is made up largely of refugees from Doriath, as well as exiles from Gondolin. Um, there are even Dunedain there. This is a city of families of refugees <laughs> and they yeah. go in and it is the worst. It's a horrible, horrible bloodbath. They murder everybody. It's awful. Yeah. It was so they bad. Get, oh, go ahead. And they, and they get nothing from it. Right. This was so bad that even some of the Feanorians could not bring themselves to take part in it. And they end up helping Elwing <laughs> escape. So yeah. at this time, there are ships from Círdan and Gilgalad, the High King, who were on their way to help, but they came too late. And Maglor and Maedros are victorious. But again, as Jude said, they, they don't get the Silmaril because Elwing is like, fuck this noise. And she yeets herself into the sea with it. Okay. This is at the time. Now, Elwing had two sons. Two young sons, as Jude said, Elrond and Elros, who we know very well of Lord Elrond and then Elros of Numenor. They are captured by Madros and Maglor. Ulmo, I, I don't want to get into it, but basically Ulmo. Ulmo turns her into a bird. Turns her so into that a she beautiful can, bird. Yes. So that she can join her husband, Eärendil. Right. Uh, and she takes the, the Silmaril to him so that they can go to Amon and plead, f- plead the case of 
men and elves with the Valar. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, yep, yep. And the right, they and the uh, Valar basically set him in his ship Vingalot, uh, sailing on the Sea of Heaven with the Silmaril up in his brow. Okay, so now that Silmaril is now off the board because it's a star in the sky. Okay, there yep. we go. So now we've got. And okay, so some of the fallout of this is we do lose more of <laughs> sons during this. Amrod and Amras die during this. We lose so many people. The mouths of Syrian are utterly ruined and stay ruined for a very, very long time. And so now we're down to only two sons of Feanor. So, do 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 do. Oh, and I just like this quote. And Maglor answered, "If it be truly the Silmaril which we saw cast into the sea that rises again by the power of the Valar, then let us be glad, for its glory is seen now by many, and is yet secure from all evil." Then the elves looked up and despaired no longer. So I do like that. Like Maglor in the end is like, "Well, hey, if it, if we couldn't have it, at least I guess we can look at it, kind of in this uh, yeah. in the sky." Uh. And here's the thing. The one sort of good out outlook is that Elrond and Elros, these sons, are safe. Quote, for Maglor took pity upon Elros and Elrond, and he cherished them, and love grew after between them, as little might be thought. But Maglor's heart was sick and weary with the burden of the dreadful oath. Okay? So he does yeah. try to do right by them in the end. And that, and I'm going to bring this up later because that, the ripple out effect of this moment uh, has has some really huge implications for the world. All right. Now, so that's the third kinslaying. In the end, okay, so just to tie this up in a bow, we're not going to go into all this, but basically the War of Wrath happens, okay? The Valar come back. Beleriand is utterly destroyed. A herald of Manway named Aonway leads this fight, and they kick Melkor's ass. El, uh, I mean, there's like dragons, and El Arundel comes down in a ship, and they kill the birds kill this dragon. It's so dope. You got to read this part. It's amazing. I Basically, will. Yes. I I will once once again. I will remind folks that the destruction of Beleriand takes place in 587, mm-hmm. First Age, and the third the third Kinslaying takes place in 538. Mm-hmm. So quick succession. No, it's, no, no, not quick ses- succession. 50 years. But for an elf. It's a war that takes 50 years. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, yes, yeah. it takes quick succession. But I, this is a right. thing that, like, yeah. uh, I always want to point out because it is it is not. Yeah. <laughs> it is not remotely obvious in mm-hmm. the text that the Kinslaying is 538. Mm-hmm. Eärendil arrives in Valinor. In 542, that host arrives in Beleriand in 545. Beleriand is fucked in 587, and Morgoth is just is thrust from Arda in 590. All yeah. told, it takes 52 years wow. from the kinslaying to Morgoth's punting <laughs> to happen. That's that's, that's ama- yeah. I mean that, that is a. And the the actual war itself takes forty five years. Mm-hmm. That's I mean I just every time we come across this fact I I am I I, I like to emphasize this that yeah. the kinslaying happens and then they they basically there's forty there's like fifty years of apocalyptic war. Yeah. Right. Right. Like earth-shattering, earth-shattering war. Literally earth-shattering war. Yeah. The continent on which they have lived, 
the last 500 years is shattered into the sea. Right. And the first thing they do when they get a chance, people are partying, drinking in the, in in what's left of the world. Mm-hmm. The first thing these two assholes do mm-hmm. is steal the Silmarils. Right. So, okay. So here's... All right, so here's what happens. So the two remaining Silmarils from the Iron are taken by Aonwe, the Herald of Mandos, okay? So taken from Melkor's crown. So now Aonwe has these two Silmarils. And, of course, Maedros and Maglor cannot fucking let it go. And they and it says, But Maedros and Maglor would not hearken, and they prepared, though now with weariness and loathing, to attempt in despair the fulfillment of their oath. For they would have given battle for the Silmarils, were they withheld even against the victorious host of Valinor, even though they stood alone against all the world. And they sent a message, therefore, to Aonwe, bidding him yield up now those jewels which old Feanor, their father, made, and Morgoth stole from them. So as Jude says, they are standing in the ruins of their home, of, of Beleriand, and being like, Silmarils, please! They can't let it go, even though yeah. they say it in weariness and loathing. Like, holy shit. Aonway's like, no way, dudes. You gave up your right to the Silmarils because of all of the shitty, horrible things that you have done. Yeah. The Silmarils yeah. are going back west. You two fuck right off. Your oath has been in vain. And Maglor, yeah. and Maglor takes this moment and, and sort of tries to uh, speak to his brother and says, okay, well, look, maybe we'll be pardoned in Valinor and the oath forgotten and we can finally have some peace. Like, let's forget it. And Mag- and Madros is like, he totally disagreed. And he said, no way. That, there's no way this oath is going to be pardoned at this point. So we might as well just keep doing it. And in the end, uh, he said, if, uh, so, so I like this quote, if none can release us, said Maglor, then indeed the everlasting darkness shall be our lot, whether we keep our oath or break it. But less evil shall we do in the breaking. So he tries, less evil shall we do if we break our oath. And even then, Madros is like, no. And they, as Jude says, they steal the two fucking Silmarils. And I think some elves die during this. They kill people. Aonway's like, well, we're not going to get in your way, you know, whatever. Do what you're going to do. And they, they finally, finally, after all of this, they fucking get their stupid Silmarils. Right, Jude? Yep. So holy shit. And, and, and what happens? Right. And here's the fucking kicker. They, it brings them absolutely no peace. Madros, like, basically. Well, not just no peace. Right, right. They, physically. Physically, they, they cannot. They hold cannot them. hold the Silmarils because right. they have committed so much sin. Right. For lack of a better word, in pursuit of the Silmarils, the hallowed light, mm-hmm. in the same way that the Silmarils burned Morgoth, it now burns them. Great point. Yes. I'm so and glad so you said that. These these two yuckles uh, have <laughs> broken, have have committed every offense yeah. in, in pursuit of these gems that they now cannot bear to hold. Right. And Maedros is like, fuck it, and yeets himself into a crack in the earth. Yeah. It says, and being in anguish and despair, he cast himself into a gaping chasm filled with fire and so ended. And the Silmaril he bore was taken into the bosom of the earth. Yeah. So that's what happened to Magros. Basically, he is consumed by fire. And then our boy Maglor 
the pain of the Silmaril tormented him both sort of mentally and physically, or maybe and or or maybe both, I argue. And he ended up, he just couldn't live with it, and he cast it into the sea. And ever after that, he wandered the shore, never coming back to live amongst the elves. And this and this is sort of the final thing that we say that is said about it. And thus it came to pass that the Silmarils found their long homes, one in the airs of heaven, and one in the fires of the heart of the world and one in the deep waters. So at the very end of all of this, like, I mean, did they, did they, did they achieve their oath? The oath of Feanor? What do you think? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. What they achieved. Well, let me rephrase that. Did they achieve every, every awful thing that the oath threatened? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Totes. Yeah. yeah. Did they ultimately go to the, send themselves to the destruction that the oath threatened Yeah. in order to possess the Silmarils and then possessing them still get the doom, the doom and destruction that they, that the oath threatened. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. (laughs) Yeah, no, they, they fucking, yeah, yeah, they blew it. Um, Oh, absolutely. The, the Kinslains though, are the really, the, the absolute, nadirs of arguably of of elf of the history of elf kind these are the the most egregious things that elf has ever done right and this is the first elf on elf violence ever ever yeah oh uh, that's insane yeah. and yeah. it's it, yeah it's it's gruesome and it's remarkable that all of them are caused by this oath it would be interesting to go i mean i wish tolkien had written about stuff, elf shit outside of the Silmarillion, mm. because we basically get the War of Ra- the, the the Lord of the Rings, which is fundamentally not an elf story. Sure, there's elves in it, mm-hmm. but it's not an elf story. I think that's fair. Yeah, and then we have the Silmarillion, which is one arc specifically about the Silmarils. Mm-hmm. But I, I would love to have gotten more about like, you know, by, by the end of the first age, you know, in the second, in the, in the second age, how, how much elf on elf violence were we dealing with? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What, yeah. What are the other rip a lot effects? What happened to those two kids in the woods? Like, yeah, there's so many yeah. unanswered questions. And I, and I think maybe that's that we always on this show, you know, we love fan fiction and we love people kind of, Taking that Filling in those blank spaces. Yeah. yeah. What a great place for people to do that. Um, uh, but yeah, the violence that begets violence is, is very much like sewn into the world now at this point. Um, and that's kind of where I wanted to, I want to pivot to a really interesting article that I read named Kinslaying in the Poetic Edda, The End of the World by David Clark. It is from a... A publication called Vikings and Medieval Scandinavia from 2007. This is volume three. And so here, so just this article basically focuses on two poems from the Poetic Edda. As a quick reminder, for those who may have forgotten, the Poetic Edda is basically an entitled collection of like old Norse narrative poems. Um, Mm. And there's a few versions of these. The text is primarily from an Icelandic medieval manuscript called the Codex Regius. Um, which contains 31 of these poems. And this article specifically talks about two poems, the world creation poem, which is called the Voluspa, 
And the last heroic poem of the Poetic Edda, which is called The Hamdismal. And I am so sorry if I am mispronouncing those. Please forgive me. First of all, what he's saying is what the author, David Clark, is saying. Is, so we have sort of two outlining levels here. OK, these okay. are these are tales that deal with kinslaying. Um, and I I'm sort of arguing that we know Tolkien loved this stuff was would have known it very very well and i'm not yeah. saying that it influenced but i'm saying that you can we can draw some similarities here so the voluspa uh that's the world creation poem and this is the this is like the tale of ragnarok right this is god level mythological poetry gods and giants god on god kinslaying mm. and then the hamdismal is an example of heroic poetry so this is human on human kinslaying and i think it's cool to see these two levels because i'm going to make um, a point about that later basically but sure. the argue is basically the uh, sorry the author is arguing that this sort of there's like links of fratricide with Ragnarok in the Voluspa and the doom of the gods, as well as the doom of this specific family in the Hamdismal are, are there to be kind of cautionary tales, right? For all of us. So mm -hmm. in the Voluspa, just it doesn't matter what it's really about, but this is the story where Baldur is killed by his twin brother, Hrothar, uh, because Lo who is blind, because Loki basically like tricked Hrothar into piercing his brother with a mistletoe. Odin is so fucking pissed that he begets another son to then <laughs> to then go and kill Hrothar, and who is blind and unaware of what he's doing from the first from the first thing. And this, so then Vali, the son, grows up and kills Hrothar, and then the cycle of fratricide continues, continues. It ends up driving the gods and the giants to destroy themselves and the cosmos. The whole earth is destroyed in fire in Ragnarok. Okay, now, uh, so that is like a big giant. This is like yeah. to me, this is very similar to Valar on Valar. This is like Melkor destroying the 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 bullseye portion of of Amon, right? Kind yeah. of destroying yeah. the earth for his own um, yeah hatred. So I, I like that that we have a god level line between these two. Now the Hamdismal again. This is the last thing in the poetic Edda. This is about the Volsung dynasty, this like family dynasty that lasts generations. There is a really interesting saga called the Volsunga saga, which. Tolkien loved and I actually like studied in school which is so cool long before this podcast ever came about um, <laughs> and basically the whole thing of this story is I don't want to get into it but there's a lot of people killing each other somebody's sister da, 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 is trampled by a horse and then somebody kills somebody else's half brother and blah 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 basically it's all about revenge and this kinslaying in this story keeps going and going and going at the very end, there's like two remaining brothers of this family who are left and they basically are fighting each other and they die alone in the snow on like opposite ends of this of this place. And their mother, who sent them off to start this horrible vengeance in the beginning, Gudrun, uh, burns herself on a funeral pyre because she has no more use for life at this point. So this entire family destroys itself. Jesus. Like it's <laughs> it is so metal and so violent. It's insane. So the so David Clark I bring this up because David Clark is he, he draws these interesting similarities between the end of the Volspa in which so Ragnarok in which the earth is destroyed by Suter's flames right and then Gudrun this mother who throws herself into the fire I'm also going to mention that Feanor we know his body completely burned he was killed by a being of fire and his body is completely 
taken apart by fire, as well as Maedros throws himself into the fire. There's some interesting through lines there that I think that I think is kind of neat. Yeah. Um, so basically, the takeaway of this article is that is to emphasize the destructiveness of vengeance and kinslaying. And basically, kinslaying sort of it's a terrible act which diminishes the perpetrator, and revenge is self perpetuating. It doesn't like pr- bring any closure to anybody, it doesn't bring any happiness. These acts of vengeance basically isolate people and then destroy them. And we see that exactly happening with the sons of Feanor in these kinslayings. It's also worth noting that the principal actor in. So we, what we don't see in Middle Earth is any of the anybody really trying to punish the Noldor for the kinslaying, except Thingol. Ooh, say more about that. Well, Thingol bans Quenya and is notably hostile to the sons of Feanor over the kinslaying. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't like. He doesn't go to war with them, but. I think it's interesting that there's, in so much as anyone is vengeful towards the sons of Feanor over the Kinslaying, it's mm-hmm. Thingol. And look at Thingol. Right. Things don't end well for him either. Yeah, because what, what, what does Thingol end up doing? He Coveting the Silmaril. Killed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, beefing it with dwarves and... Getting murdered. Getting murdered. Well, yeah. Well, he he's just generally a shitty person. Yeah. So I think that that tracks that this he, he's even peripherally engaged in this cycle of vengeance, yeah. this psych, this kinslaying cycle, and it reflects on his character. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I think you're exactly right. And anyone, and, and and I think that's that's the point that David Clark is making is that this he makes the point that these stories of kinslaying might have been familiar to like an audience who would be hearing these stories orally, and that maybe this was a ploy to like stop the cycle of violence because these cycles of violence maybe even if it's not like within a family, it's within like a community, right? This kinslaying mm-hmm. idea. So perhaps, so I don't know. So my, I, when I read this article, I thought like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if, you know, the elves who wrote the Silmar, if we take a step back and look at the framing device that, you know, isn't there, but we knew would have been there if Christopher had left it in, are the elves who wrote the Silmar, I mean, this is important because obviously they're foundational texts, but are they also there? I like the idea of them being there as like a <laughs> cautionary tale, a yeah. ploy to stop the destructive cycle, uh, you know, of of this yeah so and then the last so then i i just wanted to talk about uh, there is a great example i mean and 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 i think the one like bright spot in this is that we do see a breaking of this cycle right so the two sons of dior are left into the wood are left in the woods to starve so oh yeah i wanted to mention that so remember those two sons who were left in the woods so Mm elwing's two brothers Maedros did repent for this and he did search for them but he he never ended up finding them and then later they sort of get another chance with two other sons and these are elwing's sons elrond and elros who were captured by Maedros and Maglor, but Maglor breaks the cycle and he ends up adopting them and loving them and sort of raising them as sons. Um, So the cycle of vengeance is broken in this moment. And I think like the ripple out effect of Elros and Elrond being allowed to grow up and become the people that they became utterly shapes the world. And what like, that's the only kind of good thing that comes out of this. I think you could argue. What do you think? I wouldn't say that it, it's something good that comes out of it. Mm. But I think that it shows 
that I think it, it's evidence that Maglor's hesitance to continue the oath. Yeah. He's he 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 is trying to break away from the oath. Yeah. And you see that both in his desire in his kindness towards uh, Elrond and Elros and in his hesitancy to p- take up the oath again at the very end. Right, agreed. And because he has a shred of decency left, some good is able to survive the oath. Yeah. But I don't I I don't think it's the other way around. Yeah. I don't think good happens right. because of the oath. I think yeah. because there is some good in him. Yeah. Some good things are able to come out are able to survive the oath. The yeah. the the consequences of the oath. I think that's it, I think that's so well said. Very yep. Very apt. And and he is the only one to sort of survive the oath. He I mean if you can call that surviving whatever his existence yeah. was that we is kind of a question mark, right? Like he could still yeah. be out there somewhere, but as 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 is pointed out in those poetic Edda stories, you know, the isolation and loneliness that comes uh from the ruin of Kinslaying like is seen in not only in yeah. death but then also that that like uh that separation of of him from the only community he ever really had, right? And I did also, you know, want to mention that in the end, like none of these, only one son ever had a son of their own or a child of their own to carry on, basically. And that's Celebrimbor, right? Because that is Celebrimbor is, oh, what's his name? Somebody's son. I don't remember what is his name. Doody. Uh, he is the crafty uh, one, the guy who liked to craft. Yeah, we saw him if you watched. Oh, yeah. But I meant his dad is like the one. Yeah, no, he is Kurifin. Kurifin, thank you. Okay, so this line. So Celebrimbor is the only is the only link to this family after all yep. this happens. And and the only reason that he survived too is because when he saw what his father and uncles were doing in, in Doriath, right? He was like, uh, no, thank you. And he distanced himself and he pulls away from them and is and, and basically says no fuck you guys so he's also yeah. breaking that cycle but like you know in the end not only did they not sort of get the silmarils or when they did they they were too evil to possess them but like now like there's just like in the volsong family in this in this story in the poetic edda there's nobody left like they they're it's gone it's over it's over you know yeah. Brimbor doesn't have any any offspring like the line is broken and we know they're all about unbroken lines in uh in Tolkien so anyway I just wanted to mention that because really nothing good came from these horrible horrible kinslings and I think Jude you hit the nail on the head when you were talking about the war of wrath that like these these are horrible I'm trying to get across that these are awful awful bloody terrible events because Tolkien only writes like and then everybody died you know he just he was so he just didn't I don't know yeah he Tolkien is very strange in the in where he spends his words. Yeah. And for example, like he doesn't spend a lot of time on, he spends a lot of words on the first Kinslaying. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why a lot of people like know about it and remember it. But he doesn't dwell on the fact that like the second Kinslaying is worse and the third Kinslaying is considered like the greatest atrocity of the first age. Mm-hmm. And I mean, when you consider what it is, it's literally an army descending on a refugee camp. Right. Yeah. 
It's awful. It's awful. It's and, awful. And he spends two sentences on it, basically. Yeah. And I think so. I think it, it is important to recognize what it is and how uh, and what uh, it's an atrocity. It's a war crime. Yeah. And that's that's real fucked up. And the that's what the, that is what the the oath drove them to. And yeah. I think it would be interesting to look. That's what, like I said, I wish we had gotten more non-Silmarillion elf material from Tolkien yeah. because I'm, I'm, I would be curious to see how much the degree to which this kind of stuff happened outside of the Silmar, outside of like oath breakings and stuff. Yeah. The only other real example we have I, I can think of off the top of my head is like Aeol trying to kill his son. Mm, yeah. I'm trying to think of like I know shitty elf on elf murder and there's not that much of it. I mean, yeah, there's just that Gondolin stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing is because they, it wasn't supposed to be, this is all stems from Ardemar. None of this was supposed to be, right? Yeah. All of this is because Melkor fucked everything, put his finger in the pie and fucked everything up. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's really crazy. I mean, and so I hope that, I hope that this was a good overview of the three kinslayings. And I think I'm, I'm trying to work this out in my own brain. I'd like to do an episode about sites of consciousness, meaning places where like people go back to remember great battles. And I think it's, I think this is an interesting subject when you talk about this time period because there are no sites of consciousness. There is no like war memorial to go back to because Beleriand was fucking gone. There's nowhere to people for people to go back and like deal with their generational trauma and like deal with the trauma that yeah. they lived through. Um, which is well, for a, a lot of those, which is a healing part for some people. And yeah, for, for a lot ahead. of those elves, it's a living trauma. Right. Right. Absolutely. Right. Agreed. I think that's one of the things that's buck wild about like when you watch the rings of power, Mm. bear in mind Mm -hmm. when you watch the rings of power, I saw some complaints on the internet because people are fucking stupid, (laughs) like complaining about Galadriel's character. And I'm like, okay, right. First of all, fuck off. Second, (laughs) Galadriel has lived through the first age, right? So you'll forgive her if she still is holding on to some shit. Right. The fact that others aren't is kind of dubious, in in my opinion. Right. Like, this is the second age. Like, all this stuff we just talked about, Mm -hmm. Galadriel, Gil-Galad, Elrond, they were there for all that. Yeah. Elrond was a child at the end of all this. Yeah. Think about... Give that some fucking thought. Right. Elrond was a kid. Yeah. During that, the, during the third kinslaying. Right. That's fucked up. Yeah, it's awful. Galadriel has literally seen the worst that the world can offer. Mm-hmm. So, yes, maybe she's a little bent out of shape about Sauron. I feel like that's a reasonable stance to take. Yeah. I agreed. Granted, that is totally fair. This is a thing that I think is, that might be an interesting episode to sort of talk about like, I don't know, I am not qualified to talk about like PTSD and trauma, but I think that would be an interesting episode if we could find someone that might be more qualified to talk about like the trauma that the elves carry with that kind of age and memory 
and the oh. experiences that they have. There is, there was, oh man, shoot, I wish I had thought to figure it out, but there is, a, there was a wonderful paper given at Oxenmoot this last year where some, where a lady talked about, yeah, that trauma and, and um, specifically what you're talking about. Boy, I will, I will look it up and perhaps, yeah, perhaps we can work on that kind of episode because I do think that's yeah. really interesting and that's something that our society is exploring in greater earnestness now too. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. So, I mean, this is not a cheery episode for Valentine's Day. I'm not going to lie to y'all. <laughs> At the yeah, end of the day, uh, this sucked. But I'm so glad that we slogged through it because so many, I think so many of Tolkien's themes can be picked out of this, right? Um, yeah. And, uh, and I think, like, the need to stick together and to help one another and, and all these things that I think are his big ideas, like... Uh, that that are pointedly not done during during any of this are are um I, I think are just beautifully kind of executed here. I I don't know what I'm Agreed. saying, but yeah, cool. Well, Jude, thank you so much for sit for sitting through my book reports. Um, no, this was a great episode. Thank you so much for doing the the uh, legwork on it. Absolutely, yeah, great. Um, and listeners, if you have any you know final thoughts, any thoughts about this you want to share, please jump on our Discord, or um, you can find us on social media. Of course, we want to hear your thoughts about this too. What did what did we miss? What do you think is interesting? And do you see any other uh, interesting literary through lines that you want to tell me about? Come and school me up. That's <laughs> is that weird? Can you say that? I don't know. School me. <laughs> The road may go ever on and on, but this episode is over. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes as it helps increase our visibility. You can find us on the web at www.podcast.atherbeth.com. You can find the show on Instagram, Twitter, if it still exists when you're listening to this, Mastodon, Tumblr, all the places at Atherbeth underscore cast. Jude can be found at Aramidic Jude, and Steph can be found at the North 4, F-O-U-R. Producer James, who edits our episodes and makes us sound so good, can be found at J. Pearson. Title music is Lord of the Devil Rings by <laughs> Pony Music, courtesy of Pond 5. Pookie. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Welcome to Atherbeth, a podcast exploring the flagrant fat. Ooh, blew it. <laughs> <laughs>